feel free to turn to the book of Luke. If not, it's going to be on the screen. Um, oh, I meant to say this as I started, um, and we'll talk more again. Obviously, it's a, it's a bit of a Sunday where everybody's kind of bouncing around. Uh, it is fun to see some of you coming in, um, not late necessarily, but and not realizing that the entire front row is wide open, um, as is always true. Um, I've seen several of us, including my family, get out new chairs rather than risk sitting on the front row. Um, it's probably safer for you health-wise, but I only spit a little. Um, surely you've learned that in nearly seven years. Um, again, glad you're here. Welcome. We're in the book of Luke. If you're joining us online, we are glad you're here. Amy, thanks for kicking off the service and inviting those that are online um, to join us on our webpage, which is the best way for you to participate in what's happening and get some information. Also, I can't remember if she got this out or not, and I didn't forewarn her, warn her. If you're at home, we're going to share the Lord's Supper in worship together this morning. So if you're at home and you want to join in that, we would love for you to grab something to represent the elements. Um, so go grab a, a cracker or a piece of bread or something to represent the body of Christ. Uh, and a cup of something, water, coffee, milk, juice, whatever you may have to represent the blood of Christ. We invite you to join us in that as we do it later in the service. Um, if you're seated, you should have a little pack like this that we'll use later in the service. Um, yes, white grape, or white grape juice looks less like blood, but it also stains your clothes less if this happens to explode all over you while you try and open it. Um, so there's some intent in that, like our kids just did. Um, so... You have that, and we'll use that later in the service. If you don't have one later in the service, just raise your hand, and Aaron will help get you more. We have more of those, but we should be good for now. Uh, Book of Luke. I feel a little scattered. I don't have all my stuff ready. If I don't start uh, this, I'll be up here all day, which Miss Edith said was always fine. But Miss Edith is not in the room this morning, so the rest of you might not agree. Aaron, thanks for your prayers. Um, those of you that have served already and helped, Jim, Amy, thank you. Um, Tim, thank you for the sign. Um, saw that. Out a little bit, um, so we'll just have to deal with it. And Book chapter 10. I want to read to you several verses there as we look to complete the series that we've been on, Luke 10, starting in verse 25. It says this, it says, One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along 
And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, Yes, now go and do the same. This is the word of the Lord. We'll take a moment and let it sit in silence before I share with you some. Amen. We have circled back this morning to a, give a different gospel writer's telling of the interaction, the conversation that took place with Jesus when Jesus talked about what we understand to be called the greatest commandment. In Mark, which we looked at a few weeks ago, Jesus spoke this two-in-one commandment. He quoted two Old Testament passages and he shared with them this, this idea of loving God with loving others. But in, in Luke, in the passage that we find here, instead of Jesus actually sharing the, the passages, it's this expert in religious law or this lawyer who quotes the familiar verses about loving God and loving others. What we can learn by the way this story is told a little bit differently in each situation is that this question and the answer whether the words were coming from Jesus or from someone else, weren't unfamiliar. People had heard this before. They knew this before. In fact, the entire exercise that was going on here, the idea of asking what someone had to do in order to earn or inherit or to guarantee eternal life, was a standard rabbinical practice. It often happened with teachers. It often happened with teachers who were called rabbis because their answer was a sort of a tell as to their theological influences. It helped people know this is their leaning, this is their understanding based on the way they spoke to what do I have to do to, to inherit eternal life. This expert wanted to trick Jesus. He believed that Jesus had some heretical opinions and he wanted to prove it by asking him the question that many rabbis had been asked before with the hope that his answer would be his tell. His answer would give the evidence that he needed, but Jesus refused the trap. Instead, he allowed the expert in this telling of the story to speak the answer. All Jesus did was confirm what the expert had already stated. But the passage goes on and it tells us that the test wasn't over. That this lawyer, this expert, wanted to justify his actions. He wanted to prove what he was doing. He wanted to continue to test Jesus because he believed that there were still some heretical beliefs under there. Some evidence that Jesus was not everything that they thought he was. And he needed it to be revealed. So he challenged him again. And in verse 29, it says that he asked Jesus the question, And who is 
my neighbor. Still looking to challenge Jesus. And possibly, although it doesn't clearly state this, possibly trying to lessen the burden of loving a neighbor. And Jesus, in a way that Jesus was used to doing and we grow familiar with Jesus doing, Jesus answered the question with a story. Jesus told this man and all who were listening that there was a Jewish man who was making the 17-mile trip downhill from Jerusalem to Jericho. All of those who were listening, including the expert, had likely made this trip several times on their own. They knew the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. They knew the steep decline. They knew that it was curvy and dangerous, that there were lots of places for thieves to hide. They knew exactly. They could visualize every bit of this as Jesus told it. They knew that for one person to make this journey on their own was especially risky. And yet that's the story Jesus told. A Jewish man was making the journey on his own from Jerusalem down the hill 17 miles to Jericho. And as he was going, which would have surprised absolutely no one, there were thieves there. And the thieves stole all his stuff and beat him so much so that it was unclear if he was alive or dead. And they left him on the side of the road to die. Now, again, not surprising. Nothing at this point is surprising to those who are listening to the story. And the story continues. As Jesus says, by chance, a priest came along. And this priest didn't even come close enough to this man. Unclear if he's dead or alive, the priest didn't come close enough to find out. In fact, the story says that the priest crossed to the opposite side of the road to stay as far away from him as possible. And there are some that believe that the reason that he did so was the need to remain what they knew as unclean. For him to touch a dead body would have made him unclean. And in his line of work as a priest, that was not good for him. So there are some that believe that the reason he chose to cross the road and not get close was out of making sure that he remained unclean. The story goes on to say that there was also a Levite or a temple assistant who came along and that in the same way, this temple assistant decided not to stop and check on the man. Now, the truth is that both of these men, for the same reason, did so out of a desire to remain clean, to not become unclean, then they had taken an incredibly strict view and perspective of what it was that the Scripture said. And because of that, they believed that the warning about becoming unclean was somehow greater than any Old Testament passage that talked about taking care of the hurting or taking care of those who were dying. Or they decided this, being unclean, was more important than the other. And if it wasn't about cleanliness, then seemingly it was simply over the reality that they didn't want to burden themselves with the difficulty of caring for someone who may or may not still be living. Either way, neither paints a very pretty picture of the law followers. This is the first time as Jesus told the story that the listeners would have been shocked. He's about to make a transition that was unexpected. 
a turn that they had not been prepared for. His buildup had not revealed to them that this was coming at all. They were used to stories with three people appearing and all that, incredibly normal. There's a formula to everything that Jesus is doing at this point. But then Jesus flips the script and says, and then a third man came, but this third man didn't look anything like they expected. This third man wasn't one of them. He wasn't a God-fearer. He wasn't a layman. He wasn't even Jewish. This third man was the worst of the worst as far as they were concerned. The Jewish people hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritan people hated Jews. Both of them believed that they were the rightful heirs to the promises of Abraham and Moses. And because of that, that meant that the land that was promised was supposed to be theirs. So they fought over it, and they debated about it. To a Jew, most of whom would have been listening to this story, and obviously the expert, Samaritans were nothing more than thieves and liars. There was no way a Samaritan could be the hero to the story. But he was. Jesus said in verse 33, Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Story tells us that he took the man and with his own oil and wine, he treated his wounds. Quite possibly with his very own clothing, he bandaged up those wounds. He put clothes back on this man that had been left naked and nearly dead on the side of the road. He took him into an inn so that he could recover. And as I reread this morning, I even noticed he stayed and cared for him for a time. And then he left and said, if any more bills come up, he left money behind. If any more bills come up, I will come back and pay them. He took care of all that it would cost for the man to stay there as long as he needed to become fully healed, fully recovered. And by this point, every listener to the story would have known the answer to the pop quiz that Jesus asked at the end. Verse 36. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? Now, obviously, neighbor by connection would mean that the Jewish men who walked by were the neighbors. But they all knew the answer. And as the expert who Jesus was talking to went to answer the question, he couldn't even speak the words. He doesn't call him the Samaritan man. He says in verse 37, the one who showed him mercy, which was all he could manage to get out. All he could manage to do to stomach the turn of events that had happened in this story. The raising up of the Samaritan over the Jewish men that had walked by, over them who were listening. And in verse 37, Jesus says, Then Jesus said, Yes, now go and do the same. This passage, this story would be so much easier to take and to understand if Jesus had looked at this man and said, yes, now go and do the same, Samuel. I'm giving the expert an imaginary name. 
But if Jesus had called him by name, then the command, the challenge would have been his to take on. It would have been his challenge to take. And we might have inferred that it had something to do with us, but it would have clearly been a calling that existed for him. Even if he'd said, now you go and do the same. We could have looked at the passage and written it off and said, well, this is what Jesus wants that person to do. But instead, the subject is intentionally vague. Demanding with it that the call to go and do the same be taken on by all of us. That we read the challenge and understand it is our own to take on. It is our own to receive. The challenge was not just for the expert or the listeners. The challenge was for us too. So, friends... Who is your Samaritan? Who is your neighbor? Who is it that is the worst of the worst among them? Who is it that is most despised? Who do you imagine in your mind least deserving of rescue? Even though you might not ever speak this to anyone, who is it that you would choose to let die on the side of the road? Maybe the school bully, perhaps a sex offender, maybe a spouse who cheated on you, maybe someone who dabbles in child pornography, maybe it's a father who beat you, maybe it's someone that traffics in the selling of young children, maybe it's the Muslim, perhaps a mother who left physically or emotionally, who abandoned you. Maybe it's a black man simply because he's black or a black woman simply because she's black or maybe it's a white man simply because he's white or a white woman simply because she's white. Maybe it's some particular political official or perhaps for you it's an entire political party. Is it maybe the illegal immigrant? Or the refugee, perhaps the woman who had an abortion, or maybe the doctor who performed it. Who is your Samaritan? Because Jesus declared her, Jesus declared him. Exactly the neighbor that you and I are called to love. She is the one who should experience your grace because she is your neighbor. He is the one who who should experience your mercy because he is your neighbor. It seems that the point of the story is that if you and I can't see the Samaritan as our neighbor, then the time might come that we find ourselves left for dead on the side of the road. Jesus' challenge is intentionally hard. 
There are a bunch of ways that we can try and argue it away as something much easier, much more subtle, much less dire than it actually is. But I think that Jesus told the story the way that he did because he wanted to make sure that the expert and Chad and Valley and you specifically understood the law, that we could do more than just repeat the words, love God and love others but that the confines of our minds were stretched, that we began to think about this in new and difficult and challenging ways, that we recognize that Jesus came to bring love and grace and rescue to all of creation. And get this. He chose his followers. He chose the church to be the very first line of distributing this love and grace. And there is absolutely nothing easy about this. The kind of love that Jesus has called us to is a love that is demonstrated in action and it very well might be costly. Even more costly than we dream is possible. The writers of the book, The Art of Neighboring, challenge the readers to understand that loving neighbors is an intentionally practical practice. And it actually begins with loving our literal neighbors. They tell a story in their book of going to visit with their mayor, their local community mayor, and they wanted to figure out how it was that the churches could better serve the community. How could So all these pastors sit down with the mayor, and they talk to the mayor, and they say, Mayor, how is it that we can, that we can more faithfully serve? And I imagine some of our faces asking that question because we've asked it before. I have heard it spoken. I've heard it said. So the mayor looked back at them and says this, The majority of the issues that our community is facing would be eliminated or drastically reduced, if we could just figure out a way to become a community of great neighbors. So the churches went to the mayor, and the churches asked the mayor, how do we as churches do a better job serving our community more faithful? And what did he tell them to do? It doesn't even say whether or not the mayor was a Christ follower. But basically, his answer was this. You know, if churches would just do what Jesus asked them to do, we think we could resolve most of the issues that exist in our community. We don't even know if the man loved Jesus, but they did not need their mayor to tell them how it was that they changed their community or changed their world. Jesus had already spoken it to them generations ago. Church. Jesus has already looked to valley and said, make a difference in your world. Serve the lady who lives next door to you. Have compassion on the grouchy man who lives across the street. Meet the family who you're not real sure about who lives just down the road on the corner. Know your neighbor's. Serve your neighbors. Love your neighbors. Start on your block. Start on your street. Start in your actual community, your actual neighborhood. But for many of us, that is a difficult place, which is part of the reason we should start there. These are the people who actually see our trash, and we actually see their trash, both literally and figuratively. 
So it can be hard to figure out how we love our neighbors, the people that live right around us. And yet for some of us, that's not actually that very difficult at all. So what we need to do is to begin to stretch beyond our neighbors and to recognize who is it that we have decided are the Samaritans in our life. Those who we aren't sure deserve our mercy, our love, our grace, much less the grace of Jesus. Because the scriptures tell us Jesus absolutely disagrees with us. So he has invited you and me to the difficult and costly road of following him, of following him in the way of love. Friends, there is much that we as a church don't necessarily know about the future. But do we desire to be a people who are faithfully following Jesus in the days ahead? Do you desire that that be true of Valley? Then go and love your neighbor. Take mercy and grace to the hardest of them. Love the neighbor who lives next door and the Samaritan who lives across the street. This is our call. This is our work. It is as simple and as difficult as this. In a moment, we're going to Stop and take the Lord's Supper together. We do that because it's the first Sunday of the month, but we also do that as I recognized it was first Sunday of the month because I feel like it's a great way for us to kind of do some finishing together. Remembering that there was a time that we, too, were left for dead on the side of the road. And that while we were there, Jesus found us. He offered us healing, and he invited us to the table. Church, the invitation to Jesus' table is open to all. So before we do that, before we transition, I want the very last words that I preach to you to be these. Luke 10, verse 37 says, Then Jesus said, Yes. Now go and do the same. Pray with me, would you? Jesus, would you work in us? continue to do transformation in us so that we are a people taking love and grace and mercy to the hardest of these. God, give us courage to be the church you've called us to be, to go and do what you called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.